Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. I'm Bruce Johnson, joined by my brother Jacob Johnson. Hello everybody. And today is Current Events Monday. So, we've got a lot to discuss here today. We've got uh, just, if you've read the title, which you probably have by this point, we've got, you know, just general uh, warfare things happening. So, Lots of uh, lots of warfare discussions, uh, but don't let that get you down because uh, just after we discuss some of the current wars, we're also going to discuss what the Bible has to say about some of that. And uh, by the end of that talk, you will be just completely mush on the floor. Uh, but 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 at the very end of that talk, uh, we'll. we'll pick you up hopefully just just a little bit off off the floor so uh so anywho uh today is not meant to be a a a sad depressing episode it's more actually meant to be a a call to action or a resetting reframing of what is currently happening in the news and uh all of us if you're listening you're, you're probably fairly well aware of uh the narrative behind the ukrainian war and uh you're probably hopefully if you're well informed aware of the fact that it's a sham that there are a lot of really stupid things happening so um the uh the stupidness ensues and and continues uh and we'll be discussing that today um but you might not be completely sure uh why or why is it dumb you know like hey we we're not a fan of what's happening there but how should we react to that as Christians? Why as Christians do we really not like that whole debacle and uh, particularly our involvement in that debacle? So we're going to be getting into all of that in today's episode. But before we do all of that, we have to do what we always do, which is talk about our verse of the week. Our verse this week is Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. It's actually one verse, which is pretty awesome. And uh, this passage says, He shall judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And again, that's Isaiah 2 verse 4. There's a lot in this passage. There's a lot that's used in this passage um, to describe a future here on earth, which I think is one interesting thing to point out is notice this occurs on Earth. Notice also what is happening here. This is predicting a, a future, in our future. And notice what already exists. We already have spears. We already have swords. We have all of these things. They, they exist. But what do they get transformed into? Tools of agriculture, things that are productive and contribute to society in a less destructive means than war, and particularly an unjust war, would. Um, and so I, I think that it's particularly interesting to study passages like this that talk about the transformation of the world, especially in the context and in the light of what we always try to set on the show, which is uh, all of Christ's enemies are being made his footstool, right? We always keep coming back to that, that, oh, that old theme, you know, Psalm 110 verse one, right? Uh, Because the New Testament, the Old Testament, they all keep coming back to that theme. Christ's enemies are being made his footstool, which means his enemies are being conquered and put under his feet. And what's fascinating is that this Isaiah passage talks about one enemy in particular. It talks about the enemy of 
warfare. It talks about how when this enemy is conquered, the result is that neither shall they learn war anymore. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. People will not be in conflict, particularly nation against nation, brother against brother. They will not learn war anymore. We're going to talk a lot more about that at the end. So um, let's get into it. Jake, what, uh, what you got for us today? So uh, I think it has been a while since we have discussed uh, this issue, uh, but here was exactly what is happening in Ukraine. And this is probably something that everybody has heard of on the news. Oh, we're giving more and more money to Ukraine. Uh, you know, all this stuff, you know, always helping Ukraine. When are we sending soldiers over there? Oh, no, is it going to become a war where the draft is going to happen again or something like that? You know, all these worries going on. Believe me, there are things to worry about. But those things are happening, right? We are sending more and more money. But I do want to touch on a specific thing that is being sent over. But probably everyone has heard of this specific big news. So I have set up a segue into something that I feel needs to be more known. So I'm going to be talking about uh, specific munition or specific supply of munitions that went over to Ukraine, that America has sent into Ukraine. And I'm going to take this to talk about um, what is going on in our military and why things are looking bad. So the U.S. or, or Biden has, uh, has approved of supplying Ukraine with cluster munitions. I bet that news was quite anticlimactic as to how much I set it up, but <laughs> but because we don't know what and that and why it's anticlimactic is because we don't know what cluster munitions are. Uh, from the Arms Control Association, cluster munitions are cluster munitions, and this is this is the quote: cluster munitions are also called cluster bombs or CBUs are gravity bombs, artillery shells, and rockets that Whoa. fragment into small small bomblets or grenades according to the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Cluster Dang. Munitions means a conventional munition that is designed to disperse a or release explosive submunitions, each weighing less than 20 kilograms and includes those explosive submunitions that is not the end of what that. i was yeah. expecting goodness yeah See, when you say they, cluster musician munitions goodness. munitions yes. yeah i was expecting like a like a packet or like oh here's a collection or a cluster of bullets here you go mm -hmm. like yeah these are bullets <laughs> they explode everywhere yeah. um that's, and that's why it can wow. seem quite anticlimactic when I yeah. built it up there and said, we're sending over cluster munitions. Right. Oh, and what is that? Yeah. To a lot of people, that's like, what? Okay. We're sending over a cluster of munitions. Okay. Oh, but boy. no, these are, these are really like, in a sense, like you're shooting this, this thing It's flying above the enemy and then it explodes yeah. above them. It drops all of these other explosive elements, all these other submunitions, they're called. Yeah, interestingly, not. Wow. Yeah. Interestingly enough, Biden needed to bypass U.S. law to give these types of munitions to Ukraine. Hey, what? Yeah. Now, wow. cluster munitions are quite controversial. 
because of the sub munitions that they send out. And they are banned in a lot of countries. Like these munitions, these these cluster munitions are banned in a lot of countries because of those sub munitions. And and the reason they are is because that the sub munitions, when they are shot and they explode and they come down, they send out all the all those little grenades, right? That are when they land, they they explode on the ground, causing tons of problems. But out of those that come down, 10 to 40% of them don't go off. Okay. Some of you may have the same question I did, right? What is the issue with 10 to 40% of them not going off? (laughs) What? Okay. So it's less effective. Okay. Aside. And it's like, Okay, so they don't work as well. Someone needs to come up with a little <laughs> bit of uh, better ideas. But why would they be banned just because they don't work as well? Well, aside from the obvious answer that they are less effective, these munitions don't go off. When when they don't go off, they can lay dormant on the ground for quite some time before unexpectedly going off. Um, wow. There are su- some cases of submunitions from World War II harming civilians many years after the war ended in in places like Japan where these things went off and people created a civilization again they created they tried to live as civilians again and these things went off under their town they went off and exploded um causing multiple civilian casualties and so you know for america's case we had just war theory as our standard, right? Cluster munitions were considered weapons with high risk for civilian casualties. Again, under just war theory, those types of munitions, those types of weapons would be wrong. Hmm. Why? Because just war theory says there is no, a war is not just if it causes undue harm to civilians. So therefore, these weapons are wrong because they cause harm to civilians. They have a high risk of causing harm to civilians. Yeah. But we no longer have just war theory in our military anymore. Hmm. And from the founding of America, we had just war theory as multiple of our wars that we went into, just war theory was taken into account. And I think Bruce is going to be going over really what just war theory is. Yes. Uh, if you want, I can give a brief or you're good. You got that? Oh, yeah. Covering that? So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So I will continue on without any more explanation because you will hear that later. But there is a coalition of people looking to take religion out of our military, including our standards created through a religious understanding. Wow. For example, just war theory. For people, these people are called the Military Religious Freedom Foundations, or the MRFF. They sound harmless enough to most uh, big R Republicans, but this organization started in 2005 and has been the main proponent of eliminating morality in our current military. Hmm. As we understand from a biblical perspective, Religion gives us morality. Yep. Following the Bible gives us morality. It is the only way to have real morality. So, 
by pulling it out, they are pulling morality out of the military. So, some of their notable works include getting rid of the spiritual fitness test. This test is where soldiers are tested on their combat readiness based on a religious standard. I don't quite know what they mean by that. And I, I do have to say, take this with a grain of salt, this this little bit of information, because I am getting it from the MRFF, the Military Religious Freedom Foundation. So, of course, it is going to be biased on their opinion. So they may make this sound from their perspective to make it be like, they're testing their combat readiness based on a religious standard. It has no, they don't, they don't relate at right. all, you know. So to most people, it'll be like, oh, well, why are they doing it? You know. Yeah. And to be honest, I could see a test where religion, where soldiers were taught decision making from a biblical perspective, whether they yeah. can tell friend or foe based on a biblical perspective, whether they can decide whether or not they should bomb a town uh, based on a biblical perspective. These right. things make sense from a biblical perspective, but of course they buy with their bias. They, they turn this in a way that makes it sound weird or sound yeah. off. I mean, it, it seems like the same sort of situation. It's it not because it is the same, <laughs> not just, it seems <laughs> it is, um, as we, you know, us wanting the civil government to be regulated by God's law. You know, we want mm-hmm. generally every area of life to be regulated by the law of God, right? Because Christ is king of it all. But why do we focus so like why do we hit this this topic so hard? You know, why are we always saying civil government should be run according to the word of God? Well, that especially that government is vitally important because it affects so many people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. The military, same deal. They legally and biblically have the right to take life, right? Like civil government's job is to bear the sword. Literally bearing the sword is exactly what those, what combatants do who are in war. And that's not a wrong thing, but we stress that so much because they're literally taking someone's life. Like this is not an, there's no undo button, you know? So so for for them to say, oh, we should get rid of like moral uh, or or you know religious tests and all of this, right? What you were advocating for is saying that the people without an undo button get to do whatever the heck they want without having a structure that holds them back and says, no, this you can't do, which mm-hmm. is horrifying, absolutely horrifying. Yeah. And so lastly, uh, another thing that they are doing is they are destroying the just war theory. They're destroying just war theory, which is probably the most significant blow to an excellent moral and just military, right? If they take Mm -hmm. out just war theory, they're taking out the, the reason or at least the standard by which we fight the standard um, as to whether a war is good or not, right? So by getting rid of just war theory, they are saying they are they are taking out an integral part of the moral system. We now have a military without morality because they have taken just war theory out. 
And we all wonder now why our military is so corrupt and evil. Well, look no further than this organization, the MRFF. Yeah. So I do not have a slightly theological wrap up today. So buckle up for Bruce to turn up the heat to a boil right now. So <laughs> take the way, Bruce. Yeah. Okay. Well, the the theological wrap up I want to provide today is going to be an interesting one. And I'm thanks, Jake, for allotting me a little bit more time because I want this to be a little bit more interactive uh, than I usually do. Sorry, I just got to put my iPad down. There we go. Um, so today I want to this this title that I chose is going to sound a little strange at first, but it will make sense. I promise you. My title for today's theological wrap up is when a war is just the people flourish. When a war is just the people flourish to many wars are often thought of as something no Christian should be willing to condone in our modern times. Uh, we aren't Israel, right? We, we haven't mm -hmm. been given direct commands from God to enter into wars, as an example of something someone who doesn't really understand the Bible might say. Um, others, however, call themselves, quote-unquote, patriots or freedom lovers for pursuing wars overseas that last 20-plus years and have no chance of accomplishing their goals. And mm. what goals? <laughs> we don't have goals we're just over there because yeah freedom hoorah give us money right so but are those our only two options uh, yeah that's uh Pass. the question the question is uh how did how did my freedom get over there <laughs> right yeah exactly exactly how did, yeah what happened to my freedom i ran overseas that's weird yeah. um but are those our only two options pacifists or warmongers does the Bible provide an alternative that doesn't require us to crawl into corners every time there's a whiff of conflict? And if so, are we allowed to let ourselves become the police of the world, ensuring everyone gets along and plays nice? Is that our job? Are those really our two options? Shockingly, I know, this is going to blow your mind. Shockingly, the Bible has answers and and get this shock of all shocks this will knock your socks off um we aren't the first people to ask these uh these questions weird or we're not even the first people to be confused by biblical answers on the topic of war guess what people it's been done before as ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun so let's delve into some of those answers biblical answers and some of the questions and answers that others historically have brought up on this topic. Um, I want to start out by talking about the fact that the Bible condones war. The Bible condones war. I know this might be a foreign concept to some, but the Bible does condone war. Speaking of Israel, God said in Jeremiah 51 20, quote, you are my hammer and weapon of war. When you, uh, with you, I break nations in pieces. With you, I destroy kingdoms. Uh, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, uh, it says this, quote, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13, it says this, quote, The Lord goes out like a mighty man, 
Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Literally, God is described, quote, like a man of war. For, uh, let's see, this is uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8 says, uh, verse 1 starts out by saying, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Then verse 8 down, later down says, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Clearly, not every passage in the Bible speaks of war in a negative way. Then, of course, there's the obvious example of God literally calling Israel to war against the nations in the land he promised them. That should all be very familiar to us. Uh, additionally, the daily Christian walk is likened to a fight. A fight, not just a little skirmish, not just a little, oh, you know, just see if you can stand up against it, you know, just sort of. No, it's a fight. It's a battle. It's a war. While those standing against God's kingdom are called his enemies, which were called to battle against with spiritual weapons of warfare. A lot of warfare language happening here. Christian men are themselves told in 1 Timothy 6 verse 12 to, quote, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses, end quote. And to this, the instructions, um, I'm sorry, add to this, the instructions regarding military structure and proper national defense, which we find in Deuteronomy, um, plus the call in Romans 13 for the civil government to, quote, bear the sword, and the biblical case for war is pretty clear, right? I think at this point, I've stressed the, the fact um, and overstated maybe the fact that biblically war is obviously condoned. Is that, are mm -hmm. we clear on that? I think. Yeah. Cool. Yep. So that's set. Now, now we have to address the other side. And I titled this section, Even War Does Not Get a Free Pass. Even War Does Not Get a Free Pass. Warfare 2 is addressed by our infinitely wise Lord. Mercifully, our God has not left war up to our own machinations. Not every form of war is just, condonable, or righteous. And the Bible certainly has a lot to say on the topic. We live in a time when we have access to incredibly learned men from centuries ago. And we should be using their knowledge and work on this topic to better understand it. So, again, this is addressing those pacifistic Christians, if you will, who were like, oh, yeah, yeah, all right, fine. Uh, I'm sorry, this is addressing the warmongers. <laughs> the other one was for the pacifists. This is for the warmongers <laughs> who just want to go at it and like, oh, let's just have war. This, you know, the, the Bible has so much to say on the, on the front of, hey, not all war is acceptable. Not all war is good. And all you have to do is read through the Old Testament and see the, the bad kings, see the other nations, See, read through the book of Isaiah and you'll hear about tons and tons of bad examples of nations like Babylon and others. God used them to bring judgment on Israel, but it still doesn't make what they did right. So one of the best works on this topic is St. Augustine's just war theory, as Jacob mentioned. And Jacob talked about this a lot, not just today, but also on a previous episode. And I'm 
blanking on where that was. But if you're a long time listener to the show or watcher, you'll be familiar with a lot of those concepts because Jake spent like a whole episode quite a while back on just this. But I figured, hey, now is a good time for a refresher. Um, so let's dive into it just a little bit since we got some time. Um, St. Augustine's Just War Theory outlines several principles explaining what is and what isn't a just war. Haha, <laughs> go figure. Yeah, it's in the title. Um, <laughs> Philip Kayser sums up one of the theories discussed by Augustine in Just War Theory with this quote. Make sure that our own country has truly been in danger and that the attacks are not the result of our own warmongering. So that kind of gets you in the frame of mind of where this is going, right? That's one way you can tell if a war is just or not. And I'll include that link to Philip Kaiser's work in the description below this video. Um, but I'm also going to include in the description a quick summary of, of just war theory on one page, which is super helpful. You should still read the book, but it's a great summary nonetheless, uh, if you don't have time. But the... There, there are two phases, and as the summary says, some scholars are finding, oh, there's a third phase. What do we do after? What is just after a war? But the first two phases that are pretty solidly uh, cemented right now are something called just ad bellum, which means the conditions under which states may resort to war or to the use of armed force in general. And I'm going to put a, a picture up on screen. For those of you listening, go back and watch this because this is really important. Go on our Rumble page. You can go to trdshow.net, go to our Rumble page. You can even just watch our episode from our website right there, but you're, you're going to want to see this. It's up on screen right now. Just add Bellum. Um, and there's seven different principles listed here. And I'll just read out what they have kind of summarized here really, really quickly. Uh, just cause, comparative justice, legitimate authority, right intention, probability of success, last resort, and propens um, proportionality. So we're going to discuss those in a minute. So I'm not going to touch on them a ton because Jake and I are going to have a quick discussion in just a second. So don't worry. We will be addressing many of those. But in addition to deciding whether or not to begin a war or take combative measures, um, you have to know what to do once you're in it, right? So when you're in the war, how do you act in a just way? There's a, there's, <laughs> there's a Latin term for that. Well, go figure. It's called uh, just <laughs> in bello, which means the law of war. It's the law of war. This is a little bit shorter, um, but it, it actually has so, so much more to it. Um, uh, and this is up on screen as well. So again, podcast listeners, I'm really sorry. Go back and watch, even if you just want to watch this section, just so you can see this up on screen and read through it. Um, <clears throat> but there's there's three principles here. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, distinction, proportionality, and military necessity. So we are going to discuss that. And Jake, for the next three minutes, <clears throat> I know it's not a ton of time, but I'd love to get <laughs> your thoughts and discuss this really quickly with you. Um, you know, we've touched on wars are not wrong. The Bible condones them. We've touched on, hey, it has principles for how to structure them, deciding whether or not to get into them. But what about uh, that last bit? Just wars producing producing flourishing people. How does that work? Well, mm -hmm. I wanted to really quickly compare the American War for Independence with the Russian and Ukrainian War. And I want to use... <clears throat> Just war theory, excuse me, just war theory 
as our criterion for making that comparison. So um, I'll, I'll hand it over to you. When we, as in the American War for Independence, made our decision to begin that war using, I would assume, just ad bellum, what would you say were some of the criterion that we considered and how would you say those were played out in our decision to enter that war? So we're talking about the war for independence right now? Yeah. Yep. Okay. So in a sense, you want me to go through the really just quickly, war theory just a and few show, principles you have. Yeah. yeah. So if if we want to go through these seven, which is, is super easy. Not all right? seven. It could be super quick. Oh. Okay. I I think it could be super quick. But the first one, just cause, right? It what is the reason for going to war, right? It is correct. And, and according to just war theory, the war for independence was a just, was had just cause because we were fighting for independence. Okay. We, we were not recapturing things. We were not just trying to punish people. It is a just, just war because we are seeking independence. And they did, they see, sought all other avenues of trying to do it. Okay. Moving on. Comparative what about- justice. What about uh, the Russian and Ukrainian war? So the Russian and Ukrainian war is, in a sense, and this is coming from a perspective of not having all of the information. So please, if I do say something that is a little bit off, I'm okay to be corrected. Everything's very Uh, much in flux. So yeah. So the Ukraine is very, very close to Russia. And I, I think at one point, again, do not quote me on this. At one point, Ukraine used to be a part of Russia. So in a sense, mm-hmm. Russia is trying to reclaim something, recapture something that was already theirs, but Ukraine kind of pulled off. So in a sense, it is wrong on the side of, uh, of uh, Russia. But I would say the same for Ukraine. And actually, to, to be honest, for just cause... I would say there isn't as much for Ukraine to kind of, I understand in a sense from the just cause that in a sense, Ukraine is kind of defending themselves from Russia, right? Yeah. Um, I, I, and I will get to the fact, uh, get to a different fact as to why I don't think it's a just war, but comparative justice, uh, this one that the injustices suffered by one party must significantly outweigh that suffered by the other. So in a sense, right, what happened in the war for independence is that England was uh, oppressing America. And so therefore they were fighting back. And again, like I said, they sought all other avenues of trying to get out of that. They would sought other, all other alternatives of trying to not go to war. Whereas Ukraine didn't. Ukraine did not seek peace. Uh, I think there were peace treaties that were trying to be done and they they didn't go through. They weren't happening. So third, legitimate authority. Only duly con- con- uh, constituted public authorities may wage war. Understood. That's good. Both are true in both cases. The war for independence was not just a bunch of rebels and resistance people going up against big and powerful England. No. These were governments in America going against the government of England. Four, right intention. Force may be used only in a truly just case and solely for the purpose correcting a suffered wrong is considered a right 
intention, while material gain or maintaining economics is not. Russia is not just in this case. They are seeking economic and material gain because Ukraine has a high value of gas. They want right. that, not just on this department. Probability of success. Ours may not be used in a feudal cause or in a case where disproportionate measures are required to achieve success. That's not happening. A lot of people have said that this is an endless war. This is a war that is going to go on for years. And it, no end in sight. Probability of success? Yep. Zero to none. On either side. This is going to be going on and we have no clue how it's going to come out. Right. Last resort. Force may be only used after all other peaceful and viable alternatives have been seriously tried and exhausted. Like as it was saying with the war for independence, that though they did that, they had the last resort. They went through all other avenues they could to try and get through. The Ukraine, not so much. I do not think that they went through a large process of trying to have peace treaties to try and do this again. Don't correct me if I'm wrong. I do not think there was an extensive effort on Ukraine's side to try and stop this. Proportionality. The anticipated benefits of waging war must be proportionate to its expected evils or harms. This principle is also known as the principle of macro proportionality so as to distinguish it from the juice in bello principle of proportionality. So... This is, do the, do the harms and evils that the war is causing outweigh the good that it might happen? No, I yeah. do not think so. I do not think the Ukraine war is doing that. Yep. And in a sense, a lot of these, I'm, I'm sorry to go on, Bruce, but I understand no, we're fine. like four minutes over time. But I understand that a lot of these are from the side of Russia to Ukraine. Right, Ukraine is very much defending themselves. Why I do not think it is a just war is that the America is helping in it. Okay, right. If this was a just war, it would be between Ukraine and Russia. And I understand Ukraine does not seem like it could win. Right, but look at look at what what happened in Vietnam with America. America went over. Right. And we couldn't fight Vietnam, even though Vietnam was a very small, very small country, right? Even us as a superpower, right? So there are chances. The, the war for independence, another instance where a very small government fought back against a very, very large government with little to no help. So I do think Ukraine, in a sense, should be receiving little to no help, right, from America from outside sources. If there needs to be a war against Russia, that people need to go up against Russia and see as Russia being a, an actual threat in doing things that are unjust, yes, maybe then should people get involved. But I do not think, according to Just War, that this is, especially on the probability of success, right? This is yeah. There's no... No success going on yep. here, and we have no clue how long this is going to go. And I think it, especially with what I was just talking about today, I think it is going to be causing more civilian casualties than 
benefits. I think for especially in this proportionality, I do not think that the evils that this war is going to cause are going to outweigh the good that is going to come from it. Lastly, one last thing. Sorry, Bruce. One last thing. Why why would we be trying to help a nation that has shown itself to be evil? Ukraine is not a blessed or exuberant or flowing with God's blessing that we might that people want us to think. No, they made LGBTQ from a national level. They agreed that it was a good thing, right? No, I'm sorry. Immediately, right on that, I cannot defend. We should not defend a country that stands for that, that stands yeah. for unbiblical, that stands for evil. Right. They, they are clearly on the wrong side of God. They are under judgment for their actions. Why should we defend them? There's no reason to. Right. Okay. So we are probably going to take, if I'm not mistaken, we have yet to determine our discussion topic Friday episode. So there's so, so much more to this discussion. I would love mm. to take this into our Friday episode because we didn't even Maybe. get to just in Bello. And I yeah. think that that would be really good to address there. So yes. we'll discuss that post-show, um, which would be really awesome. So great breakdown, Jake. Thanks so much. Really appreciate that. That was fantastic. Um, just to wrap this up really quickly. Wow, we're seven minutes over. This hurts. Ouch. <laughs> Um, so there's obviously so, so much more we could say on this topic, so much more we could talk about, but we're unfortunately <laughs> really out of time. Um, when I wrote this in my notes, I knew we'd be out of time. I didn't know it'd be this bad. Uh, ultimately <laughs> one of the enemies, <laughs> our King will conquer is the necessity of war between nations. And that's Isaiah two verse four, which is our verse of the week, right? While we live in our current place in history, however, Knowing a just war from an unjust war is an absolute necessity. It just is. But eventually, the goal is to move past the necessity of these types of conversations. As it stands right now, though, this seems a long way off. So we'd best be prepared. That's where we're at right now. We have to know these things because we, unfortunately, inevitably, will probably end up being dragged into one of these. Um, Philip Kayser does some marvelous work in that, which I'll link below, where we've really, in human history have really only had 292 years collectively of peace, collectively over six, over, I think it's like 4,000 years. So out of 4,000 years, only 292 of those have been uh, of peace. Wow. Which is, yeah, ridiculous. Insane. So yeah. that means we should know this. This is vital for us to know at this moment in time. All right. Hopefully we can discuss this on Friday. Um, but thank you all so, so much for watching or listening to us today. We appreciate it. Please check out our Rumble page. Go to rumble.com slash C slash, I think it's TRD Show or the Reformed Centers. Just go to trdshow.net and you can find us all, all of the different platforms we're on on our website. Send us an email at trdshow at protonmail.com. Thanks again. And we're looking forward to seeing you on Wednesday. And remember everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord.